You want to borrow money from Ronnie Dowling. Uh, he's going to turn you down probably if you go to church here. But uh, they're going to require things from you. They want to know about possible collateral, your income. They want to see your credit. There's requirements. And tonight we're going to look in the wonderful little book of Jonah. Back four years ago, we did a sermon series out of this book. It is a great book, four chapters and not a wasted, not there's anything wasted in the Bible, but everything in here is just packed with stuff. We're going to talk about the requirements for revival, not in a mechanical sense that, you know, you got to do A, B, and C, and if you do A, B, and C, God will work. But these are things that are fundamental principles that when God works in powerful ways, these things are always behind the scenes. Remember we talked about this this morning. A revival is when God's people really get right with God. An awakening is when lost people are awakened to their lost condition and come to Christ. Normally, God's people get revived and then the awakening happens uh, alongside of that and with that. So let's talk about revival. You don't have a revival just because you have a scheduled speaker. You don't have a revival because you have scheduled meetings. Revival starts when in here when God can work in here. Here's number one, a willingness to make sacrifices. Don't you love that? Isn't that good? That's like being told you need to go on a diet. A willingness to make sacrifices. If God's going to work in our church and in your life, you've got to be willing to do things differently. In chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. We've got a map, and I left my pointer in my office, but we have a map. Can we see our map that Josh found us this week? Okay, without my pointer, it is going to be really, really tough to, uh, to be of any help with you on that. So blame me and no one else for that. But Jonah, okay, picture this in your mind. Jonah's hometown was Gath Heifer, and Gath Heifer was near Nazareth, who grew up in that. What, Josh? The other map shows that, okay? Uh, No, again, it's totally my fault. Nazareth was where who grew up? Jesus, okay? Jonah grew up, his hometown is Gath Gath Heifer, which is about probably five to ten miles from Nazareth on the border of what was then Israel, and the border of uh, the, the wicked people from Nineveh on their borderland, okay? God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, Gath Heifer from Nineveh is about 500 miles. It's about 500 miles west from where he lived. How did you travel 3,000 years ago? You walked. Maybe you had a donkey or a camel, but you walked. And the typical person back then was in much better shape than us. One, they didn't have little Debbies. And two, they were used to walking around in the desert a lot. They could walk 15 or 20 miles a day, which is a hard walk for most of us. And once he got there, Nineveh is described as a great city. It was the capital of Assyria. It was a 
uh, a huge city, a lot of suburbs, we would call it. In fact, the Nineveh probably was about a 60-mile circumference. That's how big that area was. So this is easy to miss. For Jonah to have gone to Nineveh and to do this took a lot of effort. He was going to have to walk 500 miles, and when he got there, he, it wasn't a Holiday Inn Express. He could stay in there and gather his thoughts and review his sermons on his iPad. Uh, and then, uh, you know, after he'd spent a couple of days at the spa and getting the bunions rubbed off of his feet, then he could begin walking the 60 miles around the city, screaming at them, repent, because God is fixing to smite you. He didn't want to do it. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons I think he didn't want to do it. But I, I just wonder, too, deep down in his heart, he didn't want to make the sacrifice. Would you? And he hated these people, too, which when you hate people or when something's not in your realm of love, sacrificing is a sacrifice then, correct? I mean, if you tell me to sacrifice broccoli and spinach, Amen. You say the Three Stooges and Bluebell, you've hurt my heart. But you know what? The truth is, is we don't like to make sacrifices, do we? I mean, we want a great revival. We want God to work. We want God to do things. But are we willing to sacrifice as a church and as people so God can do things? There were some little boys that were playing Noah's Ark. They had... They had, had Noah's Ark in their movie, uh, in their Sunday school class. Think about the movie Noah. And as a lesson in that morning and that afternoon, they came home and they were playing like they were Noah and they were kind of going through the Bible story and they had been delivered. And so at the end of it, Noah made sacrifices. Remember, this is before he got drunk, you know, that, that part. He made sacrifices to God when he got off the, uh, the ark. And so the little boy said, now we have to make sacrifices. I don't think they got to that last part, which is real good. But they said, what are we going to sacrifice? So they, they made a little bitty the wood pile and they had some matches and they were going to burn something well they began to look at their toys and they said well I don't want to sacrifice this I don't want to sacrifice that I don't want to sacrifice this and one boy goes I know what I'll get my mama's fixing to have a garage sale so he ran back to his house and he found an old horse he had that had a leg broke off of it and it was in terrible condition they were fixing to try to sell it at a garage sale and he brought it and he said I will sacrifice this and they put that broken little dirty horse on the fire and they burned it there's a lesson in that isn't there friend it's not a sacrifice if, if it's easy and you don't mind giving it up revival was not about to come in Jonah's heart or to Nineveh until he was willing to make some sacrifices in chapter 3 after a little convincing from the Lord that we'll see in a moment the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Now, didn't Jonah just hear this? Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a great and important city, a visit requiring three days. That's three days around the city. Revival began when Jonah was willing to make some sacrifices. What are you willing to sacrifice in your life for God to really work? I can tell you some things you need to sacrifice. Your time. Probably more of your money. Maybe a little bit more of yourself. 
You know, we used to, even when I was a kid, I can remember having seven-day revivals. We have a one-day revival, and we'll be pressed to get all of our people here. (laughs) If we want God to work, it's going to require sacrifice. Are we willing to do that? Here's the second thing. It requires a surrendering of our agendas, and right, if you're taking notes, and prejudiced after that. I left that out. Surrender of our agendas and prejudice. It's going to get to the heart of the matter here. The heart of the matter is always the heart, isn't it? Have thought about that? Verse 2 of chapter 1 and 3. Go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it. Its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah hated the Assyrians. Gath-Hefer was a border city. He had probably experienced the Assyrians coming in and, and seen what they've done. Let me tell you what the Assyrians were like. This is modern-day Iraq, by the way. They would come into places, oftentimes in warfare, they traveled in huge herds. Uh, A warrior might bring his family with him, and they would all come. So there might be thousands of people moving along. They might come into a city and burn all the children. They might take the leaders of the city and impale them on stakes before they did anything. That has a way of getting people's attention, doesn't it? Impale a few ministers and a few deacons, and I bet y'all sit up and listen, wouldn't you? They would come in oftentimes and they would take a man and skin him alive. I know this is horrible, but this is the truth. And they might tack his flesh on the city walls. They might take a prisoner and take him out in the desert and bury him up to his neck in the sand and let him die that way. You can imagine what that would be like. Villages were known to commit mass suicide when they saw the Assyrians coming. And at this particular time in the history of Israel, these people were taking over, being taken over by the Assyrians. Can you understand why Jonah maybe had a little discrimination problem, a little prejudice here? I'm going to tell you the truth. He didn't want them to be revived. He wanted them to be dead. For him to preach a message, God's fixing to smite you, was exactly what he wanted to preach to them. And Jonah said, I'm not going to do it, basically. And you know, there is no revival in your heart, in my heart, in our church, in our community, in our country, when our agendas and our prejudice, no matter how strongly we can back them up, are at the forefront over God. Now, this is incredible, but this is true. This happened in 1992. I'm not going to tell you the church. It was a small church in Texas actually in a business meeting in this church they voted to not let Hispanics join their church 1992 let me tell you what else they did that night they voted to let the Holy Spirit go out the back door too amen now I guarantee you that church is still alive they changed that policy 
I don't know what your prejudice are this evening, what agenda you're holding on to. We all have our struggles. But whatever it is for God to work, we've got to let go of that. I won't read it again, but Jonah let go of it eventually, didn't he? God got him in a toehold, we're going to see in a moment, where he got his attention. And when, when Jonah let go of his agenda, when Jonah let go of his hatred and his prejudice, it was amazing what the Lord God Almighty did in his heart and the hearts of the people he was going to preach to. You've got to surrender your agendas and your prejudice. Third requirement, personal repentance. And certainly these all go together. A turning from your sin. In verse 3, he ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now, we don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but Joppa is modern-day Tel Aviv. You've heard of Tel Aviv. It's uh, right there on the Mediterranean Sea. And, in fact, that's where probably if you fly into Israel, you'd probably fly into Tel Aviv today. Joppa was probably in southwest Spain. Now, here's a, here's a map if you're thinking about it. I'll, here, here, is, here is Joppa, here is Nineveh, and here is southwest Spain. Do you see a problem? Gaff Heifer's here. Nineveh is 500 miles to the west of it. Spain, Tarshish, is 2,500 miles southeast. Friend, when God tells you to go 500 miles west and you get on a boat to go 2,500 miles southeast, you're going in the wrong direction. Now, you don't have to be a geographist to know that, do you? But you know, prejudice, hate, lazy, whatever it was, it was sin at the the root of it. Chapter 3, verse 3, it says that he decided he would go to Nineveh. He repented. I want to read you chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, though, right now. Those who cling to worthless idols... Idol can be hatred, prejudice, agendas. Forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Isn't that awesome? But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed. I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. I'm I'm waiting for one more point to give you the, the reason that he was motivated to repent. But let me just remind you, if you decide you don't want to repent and you really belong to God... He can motivate you to repent. He can make it happen. Every great revival in the history of revivals, repentance has always been in the front of it, and it's always been in the middle of it, where people get right with God. 1995 in Brownwood, Texas, Coggin Avenue Baptist Church, it was pastored at that time by John Avant. John Avant was uh, the last pastor at First Baptist West Monroe. On a Sunday morning in January, they had a revival breakout in their first service. And the first service didn't end at 9.30 like it was supposed to. It ended at about 2 o'clock that afternoon. And people were confessing their sins, and they were getting right with God. They were broken. They were repenting. Two months later, John Avent went and spoke at Southwestern Seminary. Seminary chapel started at 10 o'clock sharp, normally ended about 10, 10.45 dull. Did you get that? It ended about 4.30 that afternoon. 
with students and professors confessing their sins and being broken and crying in repentance. You see, when God works, it begins when God's people get right with him. If we want God, why won't God save people? Why won't more people in the community come to church? Part of the barrier is us. And we need to repent. And when we repent, that frees God to work. Every great work of God is preceded by and continued by God's people repenting. Repentance. Number four, real prayer. Really praying. I love verse 1 of chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to you, Lord, and he answered me from the depths of the grave. I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Cry means to entreat. He called out. He vocalized. Literally, specifically, he asked God for his help. I believe with all my heart, if all of us could spend three days in the belly of a fish, we'd repent and learn how to pray. And we'd be saying, may the nominating committee call me. I will do whatever I'm asked. Amen? Let me tell you what God does to me occasionally. He puts me in the belly of a fish. Not literally, thank God. But he backs me in a spot where there's nowhere else to look but up. Has that ever happened to you? And that's a terrible spot to be in in 99% of the ways. But the one way that's so overwhelmingly good is it makes you turn to God. I believe I mentioned this a few months ago in a sermon, but I'm going to mention it again. I heard a preacher say, anything that makes you pray more is good for you. Oh, there may be a lot of things in that problem that aren't good, but if it's causing you to pray more, God's using that, that thing for, for good. Folks, when Jonah began to pray, revival was fixing to happen. James 4.2 is a great little verse. Listen to what it says. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet. You cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have. Read that last part. Wow. How many of you are really asking God for things? It'll be amazing someday we get to heaven and God says, there's so many things I wanted to do for you, but, but you wouldn't ask me. You wouldn't ask me. You do not have because you do not ask. Is that not an incredible passage? In 1904, may have been the last great, great revival that we've had in, in, in the world. In the last, obviously, 110 years, it happened in the little country of Wales. That revival was so powerful that police departments had to lay off policemen. They had nothing to do. In the coal mines, they couldn't get the, the, the mules to work anymore because the only way the mules knew how to work was by hearing people cuss at them. And when the miners got saved and quit cussing, the mules didn't know what to do. The bars shut down. They had no business. And you know what preceded and what continued that great revival? P.R. There was a group of people that had prayed and prayed and prayed and begged God and prayed and prayed 
and God work. Folks, if we want to see God work, and I'm not talking about just revival next week. I'm talking about it in our lives, in our church, on a continual pattern. Prayer is an absolute must to it, real praying. Let me give you a fifth thing. A willingness to spread the word. Won't read it again, but in in chapter 1, when Jonah was asked to spread the word, what did he say? God, I'm really busy. I've got to go to Spain. There's a couple of stores there my wife needs some stuff from. Uh, Maybe I'll be back in two years and we can talk about it. Revival didn't happen. Okay, I want to make you mad for just a moment, but I want to make you mad hopefully in a good way. Here's something's wrong. Here's something's wrong. Some of you deny if you go to a restaurant and your food's not good, you're going to complain to your waiter. And, and if you do it in the right way, that's okay. I mean, they should give you a good product. And if it's really bad, you might even complain to the manager. And that's okay if you do it in the right spirit. That can help them. Or if you don't like something that's going on in the city, you may call the mayor. Or, or you don't like something that's going on in the government, you may send a note to your congressman, and that's okay. And you don't like something going on in the church, please call Wayne. Uh, but you know what? We're scared to death to tell people about Jesus. It's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. I see people get aggressive, people get dogmatic, people get passionate about all kinds of things. You start talking about telling people about Jesus, they, they're like turtles. They crawl in those shells. Romans ten fourteen. Romans 10, 14, how can they call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Your stake not being good is a problem. Your congressman being lazy is a problem. Your Sunday school class being too cold is a problem. And we want to do everything we can to fix that. People going to hell is much more than a problem. And the Bible says, how are they going to know unless somebody tells them? And we will, we will get passionate and angry, and we will speak up on a thousand things. But when we start talking about telling people about Jesus, we think that's the preacher's job, and we crawl in our shells, and we get humble, and we get quiet. Goodness gracious, something's wrong. I read a story years ago about a, a man who was in a very nice car. He's driving down a road late one afternoon, and a boom, a rock hits his car. We well, sees a, a teenager standing by the side of the road, so he pulls over. He said, son, did you just throw that rock and hit my car? And he said, I sure did. And he said, why did you do that? He said, my friend and I have been hunting. He accidentally shot himself. Nobody would stop, so I had to do whatever it took to get your attention so I could get you to help me. Hey, wake up. We're we're too scared to tell people about Jesus, and they're going to hell. And and the worst thing I can think of is someday that people I know are going to be in hell, and they're going to wonder why Chris did not tell me about Jesus. And I've got some of that blood on my hand, and so do some of you. Let's let's do everything we can the rest of our life to spread the word. Revival happens when God's people get fired up enough about Jesus that we tell people about him. Spread the word. And the last thing is obedience. Obedience. Total obedience. 
Jonah went through a metamorphosis of zero obedience to total obedience. Goes back to the fish thing, doesn't it? Three days in the belly of a fish and you will do anything God says. God said, Jonah, do this. Jonah said, God, thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> Three days in the fish, he said, God, where, he starts singing, wherever you lead, I'll go. And he was raising, he was charismatic in that fish, I guarantee you. <laughs> you see, obedience to God, we, I looked at my sermon this morning and last Sunday night, and, and we touched on this because this is everything, that we've got to obey God for God to work. We've got to obey God. Enough of us in this room have to obey God if God's going to be able to do what he wants to do in our lives and our church. Charles Finney was a great preacher in the early 1800s, a great revivalist. Finney said, a revival is really just a, for, a fresh beginning of obedience to God. It looks so radical because very few of us are really totally obedient. Fresh obedience to God. And let's look at the results. When these things happen, let's see what God does in chapter 3, verse 5 through 10. The Ninevites believed God. Jonah told them, 40 days and you're going to be overturned. They believed. They declared a fast, all of them, the greatest to the least. They put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in dust, issued a proclamation. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd, or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently to God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so they will not perish. And in verse 10, a beautiful verse. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. It did not bring upon them the destruction that that he had threatened. Folks, this is what God wanted to do. This is what God had wanted to do. You read in chapter 4, God says, there are people there. There are animals there. I didn't want to destroy that place. Folks, God wants to send revival to our church and our lives. God wants to do that. He's not reluctant. But we've got to do our part to free him up. The, the, the greatest illustration is take your water hose when you get home and kink it up. No matter how, how hard the water is on, if that, that hose is kinked up enough, no water or just a little bit is going to drip out, isn't it? That's how most churches and Christians function. We just get enough to keep us wet and to, to keep our throats from dying. But, you know, when you, when you free that hose up, what happens? That water gushes out, doesn't it? See, we need to let the Holy Spirit loose. By doing these things that Jonah did. So God can have his way in our midst. I don't tell you, this stuff fires me up. Because I, I think this is exactly what God wants us to do. Let me ask you the truth. Do you want revival? Vance Havner, great old preacher. Vance Havner once said, people want revival without having the revival. We want the effect, we just don't want the cause. Do you get that? We want to get well, we just don't want the medicine. You know, the repentance, the prayer, the surrender. That's not how it works. But let me tell you something great this evening. 
Revival happening in your life is not dependent on anybody else but you. Lance said this in his prayer a moment ago, and I don't know who I heard someone say this years ago. You want revival? Draw a circle around yourself and begin to pray for God to send revival inside that circle. And when revival happens inside that circle, revival's beginning. And if it happens in enough of our circles, revival will happen in our church. Tonight, if you're not a follower of Christ, when we stand, you come and give your life to him. You want to join the church? We'd love for you to do that. You can come tonight and do that. Christian, maybe tonight you need to leave your seat and come to the altar. Come pray with a minister. Maybe it's surrendering your agenda, your prejudice, repenting, whatever it may be. But if you want God to work, it's dependent on what you're willing to do. Let's stand.